Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Four Degrees to the Streets podcast. Um, We are coming off of the end of a very exciting Black History Month, um, and we were able to accomplish a a good bit of things, and it was nice to kind of be able to mix in health and wellness and how Jasmine and I, how that shows up for us in our daily life while also connecting it to planning and the built environment. Um, we had two episodes, one with Free Full Fit um, and one with Ace Yoga LA, um, both health and wellness, um, Black women who are just killing it in the health and wellness space um, for their communities um, and for people who look like us. Um, we also shared some of our favorite books last week. Um, and y'all were really, I like, they were like, I'm getting this on Amazon. Like y'all be reading, reading. And I won't say my confession about that, but, um, Jasmine also had a book, uh, she did, we not get to mention, but Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities, written by Andre and Perry of Brookings Institute. And I think we've talked about, I cannot remember which episode, but we definitely, um, referenced that book last year. Um, so those are some of our updates. Jasmine, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I can't complain. Um, super excited that football is over and now we can only talk about basketballs on ESPN. So that brings me so much joy. How are you, Nemo? I'm well. Um, I can't complain. The sun, the sun is out. You know, spring is like, well, I think next week is um, daylight savings. So just excited for that and, and can't complain. Um well, we are very excited for the episode today. We have a special guest, Byron Nicholas um, from New Jersey, and we will be talking about regional planning in the context of the bipartisan infrastructure law. And the reason why we wanted to talk about this today is we really want Black and Brown folks to really know the scope of funds that are available and that are intentionally being targeted from the federal government, the Biden administration, that has set these intentional goals for the federal government to rectify issues of the past, especially when it comes to Black communities and harm that has been done. Um, And a lot of times the way this information is presented, you have to try to access government websites or through organizations, and it's really not accessible. So really keeping with our mission of the podcast to translate planning terms and planning topics to all audiences, we hope we'll be able to share knowledge on the infrastructure bill, how it relates to transportation, and how these how these funds can make communities whole again. And if you remember, I think it was our last episode of season one, where the money reside. If there's no money, there's no projects. And so it's good to see the federal government leading by example. And so before we get into that, I want to introduce our special guest, Byron, who has over a decade of experience covering a wide range of multimodal planning, policy funding, and design at the regional and municipal level. He served on the county sub-regional representative. He served as the county sub-regional representative to the North Jersey Transportation Planning Authority, NJTPA, which is the MPO for the region. He was also the vice chair of the Regional Transportation Advisory Committee, where he managed the transportation planning program and advised the county leadership on equitable transportation matters 
including Infrastructure and Investment Jobs Act, the county's ferry assessment, and the county's trucking study. Byron is a professional planner for the state of New Jersey, a member of the American Institute of Certified Planners, holds a Master's of Urban Planning and a BA in Environmental Design from the State, of, state University of New York at Buffalo, and is currently the Planning Accreditation Board AICP Young Planner appointee. Byron is an active industry thought leader on transportation equity. So without further ado, welcome Byron, and tell us a little bit about what inspired you to seek a career in urban planning and how that has shaped your path. Hey guys, um, you know, I'm excited to be here. So thank you for having me. Um, I'm definitely a fan of the show. And yeah, urban planning has definitely been one of those things that I've been interested in at a very young age. I've, I grew up in uh, Southeastern Queens and um, just the traveling from uh, Southeastern Queens to Manhattan, uh, acknowledging and understanding the urban transect and the different uh, housing styles or the different land uses uh, was definitely a, a huge interest that I had, especially taking public transit, uh, taking a bus to the train. And again, just realizing, you know, how uh, the spatial um, component of the city was just, you know, so amazing. Um, but I also wanted, I want to contribute some of my interests to planning uh, based on my mom's and my mother's and my dad's uh, profession. So like my mom, she's a housekeeper and she worked in different parts of the city. So uh, I was able at, at a very young age, uh, taking a train by myself to uh, meet her in the city and, um, you know, just exploring the city by myself and understanding, you know, again, like how uh, the city was um, or is just an amazing place in of itself. And then my dad, he's an, he's an architect, he's retired now. And uh, again, just visiting him and his office space really allowed me to understand uh, the built environment. And uh, just knowing that I wanted to go in a, a profession that uh, I could see myself in that office space industry, you know, that at a young age, that stood, uh, stood out to me. So um, I think, yeah, both of their professions uh, growing up was um, definitely something that I would say uh, had contributed to my interests. Um, and then lastly, uh, ACE Mentorship Program. It's a, a program in the city that allows young students uh, in high school to really know about architecture, construction, and engineering. And uh, my placement in that program allowed me to really understand uh, the, the planning profession and adjacent professions, uh, what it does in a, in a more technical aspect. And that solidified my uh, reason to study and pursue uh, urban planning in college. So I, I definitely wanna give some credit to uh, ACE Mentorship Program. Following the mentorship program, is there a way that you thought you may be working in planning and how, that, how has that changed from what you're doing now or if you've been pretty much on the same path? Yeah, uh, so I think back then I thought planning would have been, you know, such a smooth sailing industry where, you know, you just set your plans and, you you know, if you have to work with the community and that's it. But at this age and based off of the experience that I have now, I realize how political planning can be. Um, I realize how how much effort goes into uh, coordination and with different uh different agencies, different community groups. Um, and again, like just thinking about uh, people's interests and tying that to 
um what i'm doing it was yeah that you know in general it was just a it's something that i think as i explored planning i I didn't imagine it would be this um intricate and this intense in that sense nemo what inspired you in planning are you doing what you thought you would be doing when you set out to study planning no not no (laughs) no not at all i think um i was thankful to find urban planning pretty young i was 17 um and i know a lot of people usually discover it while they're already in school um, or maybe they were studying one thing and then discovered planning along the route. But um, I was able to, you know, start that that educational path um, in higher education pretty early. Um, and uh, I had always seen myself doing a lot more grassroots, a lot more nonprofit work. Um, but I knew I always wanted to um, experience local government. Um, and so that is, I think I'm in that path currently where I'm getting to do that. Um but I was always intimidated by the transportation field um, and intimidated by numbers. And now I've been doing that for the last like the last you know couple of years. Um, and so I always encourage people to not shy away from the things that may that may make them nervous or may intimidate them, especially too if they don't see people in those spaces that look like them. But to know that you can try it, you can see if it interests you, and you know not let anybody. Um, shake you or scare you out of something that you're truly passionate about, which for me was how people move around from place to place. Um, but what about you, Jasmine? How's your path been? All over the place. <laughs> um, definitely thought I would be doing transportation planning, working on the real estate side. It's not something that I thought I would be doing. And I remember being in both undergrad and grad school and saying like, no, I'm not going to do housing. Like transportation is more important. And look at me now, but I'm happy with the full circle. I was just talking to someone the other day about like your journey and how like you have to take the full path, whatever that looks like for you. And you, you need all of it because it's going to come into play in different areas of your life. So really grateful and grateful. We had an episode, we talked about four degrees and four careers. I think that was like in season three or something where we had a panel of, of, planners, people that are study planning, but are doing something else. And I think that just speaks to the degree and like how much you learn in the field and how easy it is for you to pivot into different areas of the built environment, where if you studied transportation planning in school, you can still end up working in a real estate space because you have this knowledge that it's a really transferable skill set. So the purpose of this episode, as Nemo talked about, is to kind of discuss the bipartisan infrastructure law and connect that to regional planning. Byron is our regional planning expert, and he's going to lead us through this episode. And Nemo and I are just kind of here for the ride. So I'm going to provide some context really quickly on what is this infrastructure bill. And so the Infrastructure Investment and Job Act also known as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, or just the Infrastructure Bill, was signed into law by President Biden on November 15, 2021. The United States hasn't had a single bill that provided this much funding for infrastructure since the New Deal with FDR. The difference now is that 
this infrastructure bill is not a stimulus package. The new deal was designed to kind of get us out of the recession or the great depression. And this is more of a long-term commitment to building up America's infrastructure. And it's a 1.2 trillion with a T and an R, a billion dollar initiative of government spending and about 550 billion of it roughly have is new funding. And so it's new funding because different agencies, whether it's Department of the Interior, Department of Transportation, um, the NOAA department, all the different departments already have their kind of budgets annually that have like stepped up increases. And so this additional funding is like a new layer of, of funding. And so it majority of it specializes on transportation. So 283 billion of it is dedicated to transportation, but it also includes broadband services, what are like the internet and phone services, the power in our grid system, water, resiliency, just generally water for the Western part of the country, Colorado, California, Seattle areas, and then legacy pollution. And so I just wanted to highlight one of the levels of the infrastructure bill that was interesting to me. And so part of the bill has $16 billion dedicated to orphaned wells and abandoned mine lands. And that was really interesting to me because I never really thought about the number of people that live in proximity to abandoned coal mines or oil fields, but it does create an environmental safety hazard for those communities. And so this bill, as part of it being infrastructure, is not just roads, bridges, tunnels, airports, but also just all infrastructure across the board. And I thought that was really interesting. I wanted to highlight it for the listeners. I think that exam that piece that you pulled out, Jasmine, I think gets at something else about why the bipartisan infrastructure law is important for where we are, where we are in this country right now, is that um really I would I from what I from my point of view where I see it is that the Biden administration really acknowledged the state of infrastructure in this country. Um, I think they actually use the word it's crumbling. And so this is an attempt to to repair and address it in an intentional way, um, which I think was something that um, that he prioritized um, throughout his campaign. And I think this is part of him, um, you know, holding told him to that, even though there's a lot of critique about it, which we'll talk about throughout the episode. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think previous bills were based off of uh, maintenance. And, you know, as you said, Nemo, uh, this bill really takes a look at how we can do investments in our infrastructure uh, to improve it for the future, you know, so not just uh, maintaining what we have, but uh, to tie that into uh, people's lives into better people's lives. So we're going to connect it and just talk briefly about regional planning because a lot of the transportation elements or the ground transportation elements of the bill are kind of directed towards regional uh, planning providers. And so Byron, talk to us a little bit about what is regional planning specifically in the context of transportation regional planning. Yeah. So uh, Plan Edison uh, defines regional planning as a form of planning uh, based off of geographic locations, right? Uh, so this usually comprises of a large area of land, um, which consists of multiple cities and counties. Uh, in the United States, regions can also uh, cross state lines. So we see this in, uh, for example, uh, RPA, right? Uh, that's the Regional Plan Association, and that covers the tri-state area of New York uh, of New York City, which includes New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. 
Um, and then we see other types of regions that may just uh, stay within state lines, uh, such as MPOs, the New Jersey Transportation Planning Authority, which just covers the northern section of New Jersey. Learning about the structure of um, MPOs, also known as Metropolitan Planning Organizations, um, where I did my undergrad in Seattle, and then doing my grads program in Jersey, and then now being in the D.C. area. So my understanding of how they operate in the context of regional planning has been, has like shape, shape shifted. But what's important to know is that many MPOs, Metropolitan Planning Organizations, exist within regional councils or regional planning bodies. Um, and their responsibility is to provide input and review and really have a hand in the planning and implementation of federal transportation funds and uh, regional transportation planning broadly. Um, and what made this a requirement was the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1962. And so in response to the creation of highways in this country, um, the federal government mandated that MPOs must exist in urban areas that have over 50,000 people. Um, and living in large urban areas, 50,000 people doesn't sound like that much for an urban area. And so, but maybe that's a good thing because that means that there are more there's more, more involvement in regional planning, even for areas that may not be booming and bustling with high populations, but they still need regional planning and connectivity and mobility too. Um, and so there are a few things that uh, made uh, regional planning and regional councils um, have more of a hand in it. And so one of that is the 1965 Housing Act. And so that was able to allocate through underwriting that funds are distributed to regional councils to do studies, data collection, and prepare regional plans and programs. Also, the Demonstration Cities and Metropolitan Development Act of 1962 also stimulated the establishment of these councils um, by requiring that they review all local applications for federal funding. And so when we start talking about some of the transportation elements of the bipartisan infrastructure law, um, we'll see how that comes up too, because even though local governments or municipalities may be applying for this funding, they still have to tap into these regional councils and these council of governments and their MPOs to get buy-in. Um, and then lastly, the circulator A95, that was another um, another piece of law that allowed them to review their, to expand their functions. Um, so it wouldn't just be transportation, federal funding, but also housing, um, water and sewer development, um, citizen participation or community engagement um, and parks and recreational type of planning. And so we wanted to use one of the, um, one, we wanted to look at an MPO um, and a regional council in the country. So one that we looked at was Southern California Association of Governments to really see the day-to-day -day responsibilities of what they do. Um, because even, like I said, <laughs> being in the field, it's been a little bit gray and I've, see, I've interacted with them in different capacities, whether it was, you know, um, knowing when their uh, when their monthly meetings are, knowing how people are selected in local governments to be part of the regional council. So in DC, for instance, there's so, as Byron mentioned, there are the state lines. So we have in DC, the Metropolitan Washington Council of Government. I don't even, I can't count how many different re, like municipalities and counties and states that are represented on that board and leadership from these um, from these towns that have all varying different priorities. Um, and especially in D.C., not being a state, a lot of times those municipalities can look at us like, well, y'all aren't a state. Like, what do you like? We have different priorities here and we have we serve different populations. And so sometimes that can be contentious. Um, but some of the things that we looked at for Southern California Association of Governments, 
um, they look at strategies. So they develop um, community strategies to address environmental issues like greenhouse gas emissions. Um, they also maintain a continuous comprehensive and coordinated planning process so that some of that regional planning we were talking about um, they also authorize regional agencies for intergovernmental review, so for federal funding, um, and they're also responsible for looking at um, waste, waste treatment management plans and preparing housing needs assessments for the region. The thing that's so interesting about regional planning is just that, like how many local jurisdictions and counties are involved, right? So take, because um, I know Jersey the best, like take um, North Jersey Transportation Planning Authority, for example, and they're just North Jersey. So I think that's just Essex, and you can correct me, Byron, is it just Essex County and up, or does Union County, is Union County also included? Yeah, Union County is also included, Monmouth County as well. So it goes Okay, so that's a perfect example. So it starts in Monmouth County, which is like the beach. And then I'm not going to say Jersey Shore on here because that's not what we subscribe to. But that's the beach all the way north, right, to Bergen County, which is like right outside of New York, Jersey City. And so just think about how different those landscapes are. Monmouth County probably has uh, average um, age of like, 45. Bergen County might only be like 36. There's probably more student, more children living in Monmouth County than there are in Bergen County. Bergen County has way more transportation options. And so it's like, then you have all these different towns. Monmouth County has a lot of towns that are still very suburban in nature and Bergen County, almost all of them are cities. And so it's interesting that they work together to work in the region because people who live in New Jersey or live in the region commute between those two places. You can spend a day, you can live in Monmouth County and work in Bergen County, and you're going to be going through Middlesex and Union counties to in Essex counties to get there. And so I love regional planning for that reason is that these different entities come together and they say for the betterment of this area, not just my city, not just my county, but for the betterment of this larger area, we want to have a coordinated effort of our planning goals. And I think regional planning is one of the more dynamic areas of urban planning for that reason. So you have all these different people who have different goals, different constituents, different populations that they want to serve and want to protect, but they have to work together in a coordinated effort just because we're all connected, whether through employment or through water or through transportation, we're connected regardless. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, just to add on to that, when it comes to different initiatives, uh, such as electric vehicle deployment, uh, or BRTs, for example, that takes a great level of coordination and um, participation amongst multiple municipalities and counties, right? So uh, when it comes to the MPO, they would serve as that central unit uh, that will try to guide uh, initiatives, uh, different types of initiatives in that sense. Byron, I'm curious, how have you seen it from the, I guess, how you've seen the the representatives and the employees maybe internally inside of regional planning councils or MPOs and how they work with um, municipal leadership or people who are working in the local government or the county. Yeah, so there's a board structure, right? Um, each member of the board represents uh, the municipalities or the counties that are, serves on uh, 
that serves uh, in the MPO, right? So when it comes to, for example, NJTPA has about 13 um, representatives and there's gonna be a, a sub-regional representative for each. And the idea of that sub-regional representative, uh, their main goal is to be uh, act as a liaise or is to liaise between the MPO and the locality. Uh, essentially, whatever interest that the locality may have when it comes to transportation goals and objectives, they're supposed to communicate that to the MPO, and the MPO is supposed to provide resources uh, that would uh, forward the goals and objectives of that locality. And from the other end as well, uh, the MPO may want um, information from the localities, or especially when it comes to community involvement. And the best way to involve the community is to, in 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 terms of the MPO, is to rely on that subregional representative to be understanding of that particular county or municipality, right? So they can serve as that that uh, medium between the community members and the MPO. Thank you. Yeah, I would just want to reiterate for anyone listening, and this may be all brand new and be like, what are they talking about? <laughs> like, what is it? What is this MPO? What does it have to do with the federal funding? I think the point that we really all want to stress is that um, this is relevant because it, I like again on federal government website, you might have to look for a little bit deeper, but there's not really that specific connection that to receive federal funding, it has to be approved and reviewed by the regional planning um, council or by the MPO. Um, and so in this episode, we want to make that connection that yes, there's all this federal funding that is coming, but regional planning plays a crucial role too. Um, and so Byron, um, I wanted you to talk a little bit more about um, the transportation pieces involved in the bipartisan infrastructure law. Yeah, so again, this uh, infrastructure law is, I think, very impressive, right? It's reauthorizing uh, prior programs. It has, uh, as uh, Jasmine mentioned, a trillion dollars, uh, a trillion plus dollars, where $110 billion is invested in roads and bridges, uh, $42 billion just in airports and, and different ports, uh, $15 billion in electric vehicle investments, uh, $39 billion in public transit, uh, $66 billion in uh, passenger and freight rail, $11 billion in uh, transportation safety, and uh, $1 billion in a Reconnecting Communities uh, pilot grant program. Um, and as I mentioned before, uh, it reauthorizes the Fix America Surface Transportation Act, which is the FAST Act uh, that was initiated, I believe, during the Obama administration. Um, so what does this all mean, right? This is a lot of money that's being allocated uh, towards uh, counties, MPOs, municipalities. One for within this bill uh, is the largest federal public transit investment. Uh, it has the largest clean energy transmission investments where um, there's investments to uh, improve public safety and climate resilience. Um, that it's creating uh, thousands of jobs across the country. Uh, we're thinking about uh, we're, you know, within this bill, uh, it's also creating a, a national network of EV charges, which I've alluded to before. And I think what's the most important factor in this particular bill is it's looking at, it's using equity as a framework. It's using equity to um, be that pillar that overarches all the programs that 
the bill introduces and we can talk more about that as you know uh throughout the the series but um equity in this particular case is going to be very important when it comes to a uh, funding allocation i'm looking at the chart that byron has in here and I'm looking at this $42 billion number for airports and ports and praying that EWR, North New Jersey's airport is getting like at least three or 4 billion just off to the side because <laughs> we need it terribly bad. I'm so tired of um, North airport. So that's just shout out to New Jersey. But I think this is a really interesting um, infrastructure funding structure because of the way that it separates out transportation safety, climate resilience, connecting communities from roads and bridges, modernized public transit and passenger and freight rail, right? Because if you expected that roads and bridges would then include transportation safety, you might not get transportation safety, right? So you have to say this fun funding is specifically allocated towards transportation safety improvements. Because if you just say, here's the money for roads and bridges, but make sure that you're adding in some safety elements, they might not occur. And so I think that is really insightful to say, we want to make sure that these investments are improving places and not just shoring up infrastructure, shoring up deteriorating bridges and tunnels and airports, but also making sure that they're coming back better than they were before. And I think the website for this bill is like, building back better or something that's truly impactful because you can just redo it, right? You can just fix the bridge, fix the highway, fix the airport without thinking about the climate or thinking about safety in any way that's meaningful or equity in any way that's meaningful. Right. And just to add, uh, the bill pretty much separates discretionary funds from formulated funds, right? Uh, the formulated funds is essentially uh, proportional funds that the Fed send to uh, lo localities through MPOs, uh, but then the discretionary fund program, which is pretty much uh, the grants, it takes a look at how we can rectify some of the wrongdoings we've done. Um, how can we reconnect uh, communities, for example? Um, and it, again, it centralized uh, equity as a main uh, framework. I'll just add, um, if someone's listening and wanting to kind of just get a broad view of what's been done so far. As Jasmine mentioned, it was signed into law in November, 2021. Um, and so there is a tool that we'll put in the show notes where you can map out, um, you can see the, the map of the US and where um, formula and discretionary funds um, have been granted and the project amount and what it will be doing. Um, and just visually, you can see the Eastern part of the country has a lot more um, investment so far. Um, but that just may be the um, the distribution of kind of rural and urban and like where infrastructure is already existing or the age off also of the country is just my guess um, of why they may be looking heavier on the eastern part of the country. Byron, do you want to say more about formula funds and discretionary funds? Yeah, I think those so, are big vocabulary words that we oh, yeah. break down for. The, that's a big word for Elmo. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. Um, so when it comes to formula funds, um, for example, uh, USDOT has a, a program called National Highway Performance, right? And it takes a look at uh, the safety, as you mentioned before, Jasmine, uh, the safety regulations and protocol, and it allocates funds uh, to improve safety on our national interstate highway. Um, there's other different types of programs where the federal level, the federal government would, again, appropriate uh, funding to the state DOTs 
Um, and then within the discretionary funds, I, I believe most programs go through, or all the programs rather have to go through uh, the MPO. Um, so as a, you know, I've pretty much touched on before, when it comes to the grant programs of the past, they are different from these grant programs where equity is a huge component. And we're taking a look at equity when it comes to environmental justice. Uh, we're taking a, a look at equity when it comes to community engagement. And I, I actually want to use the term community involvement because there's an emphasis on uh doing consensus building with the community prior to applying to these grants, right? They want to make sure that the USDOT and the federal level want to make sure that everyone is on board when it comes to uh, the partnerships and the collaborations uh, for these projects to be initiated and to go through the uh, delivery process. The purpose of our podcast is is tools, right? And is sharing knowledge for communities that they can use to better their their neighborhoods. And for people who haven't studied planning or engineering or architecture, to listen to our podcast and take this really technical knowledge. All of us on this call have master's degrees in planning and say, okay, well, I want to do something XYZ in my neighborhood. And so we're gonna talk. A little bit about or dig into really the reconnecting communities pilot program and while the application process has closed for this year they it will be reopening either next year or in in future years and so i saw this come out and i saw all the planned citizen articles and the apa articles and the uli articles and I didn't see as many like newspaper articles about it, like things that would actually reach people who aren't just like planning nerds. And so I'm really excited about this conversation because I'm hopeful that there are a lot of people who are listening to us who will work with their MPOs or work with community organizations in their neighborhood to apply for them. Because I can think of so many communities that can benefit from this program. So what is this program? According to the program fact sheet, which we will have in our show notes, we have everything in the show notes, the purpose of the Reconnecting Communities pilot program is to reconnect communities by removing, retrofitting, or mitigating transportation facilities, such as highways or rail lines that create barriers to community connectivity, including mobility, access, or economic development. The program funds um, planning and capital construction to address infrastructure barriers, reconnect communities, and improve people's lives. So what does that mean exactly? It's saying we have a transportation facility, whether it's a highway or a bridge or a tunnel or just a really wide arterial roadway that is limiting people's connectivity to other parts of the city, to jobs, to employment, to their waterfront even. And so we're saying we want to have this grant program, people apply to it, in which they can fix certain elements of that transportation network. And so we had an episode, who season one, we talked about all these highways that just cut up communities through our highway um, act of 1954. Am I doing that right? And so... um. Tons of, of cities have highways that rip right through the middle. Miami, St. Paul, New Orleans, San Francisco, New Jersey, uh, East Orange, New Jersey. Uh, so many different 
cities are dealing with this issue and Brooklyn, the BQE, all these different, um, and cross Bronx expressway. I could go on for days. And so I think this pilot program is amazing and let's talk more about it. Nemo, I know you want to highlight one of them in particular. One of the examples that came to mind and it was also mentioned in the, um, bipartisan infrastructure plan, um, or I guess maybe the original one, um, cause it went through several iterations before it was signed, um, is, um, I-10 in New Orleans. Um, and that's where I was born, um, did not spend a lot of time, um, or even, you know, was not necessarily there to understand it. Um, once I had an understanding of planning, um, but, um, specifically I-10, um, cut through a neighborhood and it, um, displaced many black households. Um, and it's also interesting that a lot of times when this specific example is mentioned, they talk about the oak trees that were also displaced too. Um, and I think about that from an environmental standpoint too. Um, yes, people's homes and their livelihood, that's like top priority. Um, but what happens when we also take away green space, which is also something that we've talked about, uh, many times on this, on this episode, on the, on this, um, podcast. Um, and so, you know, even just the, and I won't get into it too much, but, um, understanding the demographic makeup of New Orleans. Um, and even, I think if you date back, um, Robert Moses was also, was actually involved in, uh, uh, the original plan of what that highway would have looked like. Um, but due to grassroots movements and activists, they actually, it was stopped um, and it wasn't able to be appealed. Um, it wasn't able to, the, the activists were able to stop the federal government initially. Um, but then later that was when I-10 came along um, and destroyed that historic black neighborhood. And so um, I think now, I think that same kind of mindset can be applied to this pilot in terms of who's advocating for it um, and, it's too late to stop all the highways that Jasmine mentioned, um, but there's, uh, I think there's room to be innovative about what we do next. Speaking of highways, I'll just share a quick little personal anecdote about the Cross Bronx Expressway. I was hit by a car near the Cross Bronx Expressway as a pedestrian. I don't know if even Nemo even knows that. But yes, I was a young planning student doing a uh, parks and recreation study in the Bronx. And there's a park that is, it's an elevated park near the Cross Bronx Expressway. And so there's like, there's like an off ramp of the Cross Bronx Expressway near the exit of this park. And I was in the park taking pictures, trying to get my research done. And I exited the park and I was going to use the crosswalk. It's not a stop sign when you come off the Cross Bronx Expressway into this neighborhood in Cortona Park of the Bronx. It's just a, there's not a, not a street light. There's just a stop sign. People run stop signs all the time, especially when you're coming off the Cross Bronx Expressway. When you're going 80 miles per hour, you're about to enter a 25 miles per hour zone. You're not stopping at this stop sign. So here's me. Crossing the street in the crosswalk, boom, I'm hit by a minivan getting off the Cross Bronx Expressway. And so had to go to the hospital, all these crazy things. But that's just to say these highways had drastic, they drastically changed neighborhoods, right? So they literally cut, think about how wide a highway is, right? It might be, each lane might be 14 feet across and there might be six lanes in each direction. That's a, that's a whole community that was living there before you decided to cut through the middle of it. And so there's beyond displacement, like 
I think there needs to be, it's like displacement times four. It's like way worse than it because you literally obliterated the buildings, the institutions, the churches, the communities, the networks. And then, especially in the context of New York, speaking of books, The Power Broker is an amazing book about Robert Moses in New York City and in the work that he did in the good and the bad and the ugly of all of it. But in the context of New York, there was no like, we're taking your house. Here's another place for you to go. Like it just was, you're going because a lot of them are renters. So we're your property owner gets the money. They could do whatever they need to, but you as a renter, figure it out. And so communities just really disappear and that network is gone. But on a today level, it's really a safety hazard. Like me, I'm okay. Thank you. But like that could have been way worse. And I don't have the statistics of how many accidents and all that stuff happened, but even not just the highway, but the community immediately adjacent to it are experiencing those transportation safety issues. And so I just wanted to share that little story. As you mentioned, Jasmine, like there's the traffic safety component, and then there's also like the health uh, and social implications, right? And as we see within the Bronx as well, like there's major adverse implications of the cross Bronx Expressway and the traffic that's there and the vehicles that are contributing to air pollution um, and noise pollution. But let's focus on air pollution, right? Uh, there's a disproportionate amount of children with high asthma rates in the Bronx that is pretty much um, that pretty much comes from the Cross Bronx Expressway and other highway development within the Bronx. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing all of the, and I'm I'm wondering, I tried to look it up and see, the data hasn't yet been published of how many people applied to this first round of, of applications and like what were the applications, but I'm so curious to find out. And so speaking of the application process, Byron, if you can, I want you to talk about what that looks like. Who are the eligible applicants? What do you need to do to apply? What are the different structures? Um, as much as you can share. Yeah, so the eligible applicants for the Reconnecting Communities uh, pilot grant program are states, units of local government, uh, tribal organizations, MPOs, as we spoke about, and nonprofit organizations. Um, essentially, the program requires uh, some type of eligible facility to be mitigated. And those eligible, eligible facilities can um, include barriers to mobility, access or economic development. Um, it, they'll take a look at high speeds, grade separation facilities, uh, and other factors. And there's a difference between a capital application and a planning application. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, correct. So for the planning grant application, um, there the applicants would have to be a state unit of local government, tribal government, uh, MPO, and nonprofit organization. But when it comes to the capital capital construction applicants, um, it must be the facility owner. So it has to be, for example, if it's the Cross Bronx Expressway, whoever is the the owner of the Cross Bronx Expressway in this state, in this case, it is New York State, right? Um, and so for planning grant applications, essentially you're given a less amount of funding, uh, but it's to really assess what uh, the issue is and how that can be resolved through a planning, a comprehensive planning process. The capital construction uh, grant provides millions of dollars, multi-millions of dollars uh, to uh, essentially mitigate uh, the, the issues that that particular facility has. So 
to be eligible for the capital construction grant, you have to have some type of planning uh, component tied to it. In the capital construction grants, is there like a matching that's required by, um, like if the federal government says, okay, we've approved you, does the local government, whether that's the state or your county or municipality have to match or is that an optional thing? Yeah, so it is a requirement to have a matching amount of 20%. Uh, that 20%, uh, and that's, again, something that I think the USDOT is being very flexible with, where they are understanding that, you know, not every municipality or every applicant, rather, would have the same resources, right? So the 20% match can be in-kind uh, personnel uh, dollars, which are pretty much allocated time towards a project. And there's uh, some of the factors that would be considered uh, that for that 20% match as well. I think that's amazing. When I was reading it, I don't know which project it was, but I think the governor was saying like, yeah, we're definitely going to be able to support this because they, they care about the same thing. And I think that's wonderful to see the gov the local governments and the federal governments aligning with like the community concerns. I want to just highlight, I know we've talked a lot about highways, but I don't think all the projects have to be highways. They could just be a really challenging roadway or, or boulevard or something like that, correct? Yeah, correct. So it could be an airport, it could be a rail facility. Um, and just to point out, there's another program that looks directly at how rail facilities could be mitigated. But in this particular case, as a pilot program to reconnect communities, they've also included uh, mitigation efforts for, um, again, rail facilities and other types of uh, entities that may contribute to separating uh, people from, you know, their networks or their economic jobs and stuff like that. I think it was literally just a few days ago that um, USDOT announced the, some of the winners of the um, Reconnecting Communities pilot, um, literally in the midst of us planning for this episode, so that's perfect. Um, but they awarded um, 39 planning grants and six capital construction grants. Um, and so like you were saying, Jasmine, it may not be a specific, um, like something physical you can see, but it will help a lot of um, a lot of governments or organizations be able to do planning and create recommendations. Um, and I think as I'm as we are going through this episode, I feel like I'm getting all these ideas and I'm getting all this inspiration um, for what the funds could be used for. Um, and so I'm excited to dig in. Maybe we'll do a follow up either in a later episode or a post to share um, a little bit more about what, what was awarded in this first round. So we talked a lot about the infrastructure bill and in particular, the Reconnecting Communities pilot program. I wanna get some feedback from Nemo and Byron. Do you think it's enough? What are you excited about? What are your concerns? Let's talk about our, our responses. So Nemo, give me kind of your bigger thoughts about this pilot program and the bill in general. Yeah, I think coming into doing this episode, um, I had a lot of thoughts about it not being enough. So there's no way that it could have ever been enough when we look at the like scale of the issues. And I'm you know appreciative of the personal example that we all shared a little bit earlier. Um, and so now I'm in a more of a, um, what's the word, optimistic space, um, which is kind of rare. I feel like usually <laughs> sometimes at the end of our episodes, I'm feeling a little bit like, man, like 
the ways of the world, but I'm actually feeling optimistic and energized thinking about how this can be applied moving forward. I'm looking forward to, like I said, digging into what was awarded. Um, I know one of the capital, one of the specific capital projects that were awarded was in Buffalo, New York. Um, so they got 55 million to build a new highway cap over the um, Kensington Expressway. Um, and so that specifically impacts the city's um, black residents on the east side. Um, and so with that plan, they'll be able to connect some of those roadways and create green space and have, they specifically mentioned safer pedestrian crossings. Um, and uh, I hope that also slows down speed because as we know, speed kills. Um, and so in the example that you were giving Jasmine about the Cross Bronx Expressway, if there was just a way to slow down speed before, you know, before going into a neighborhood, I think about um, the new um, Frederick Douglass Memorial Bridge that was completed in DC. Um, and uh, a lot of people were saying, they're like, oh, the road, like the, the, the I can't think of the word for it, but like the, the traffic pattern, they're like, it's a little weird. Um, and the more that I drive on it, I'm like, oh, this actually makes sense. Like shout out to, uh, to Didi and that, in that bridge, because you're going into Navy Yard and you're going into, um, if you're going into like high commercial areas, you're going into residential areas. Um, and there's like no way you can speed across that bridge <laughs> and go into that neighborhood. You're literally having to go 25 miles per hour, maybe at night when there's nobody around, unfortunately. Um, but the times that I've been on it, it really, there's a, it's kind of curves in a way where it slows down. And I think that's an intentional, um, intentional design mechanism that makes connecting a bridge and a highway into going into a neighborhood a little bit safer. So that was a rant. I'm, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> No, we love it. Um, I didn't know that was called the Frederick Douglass Memorial Bridge. When you were talking about, I was like, where is that? But cool. I like that. I like Navy Yard area. Um, Byron, do you want to share your feedback also or your kind of takeaways? Yeah. Uh, so I've had an opportunity to interview some planners and community advocates uh, in an APA article about the Reconnecting Communities uh, grant program. And one thing that I would say was a consensus was that they everyone seemed to love the fact that the grant would tackle uh, multimodality, right? And improving access for uh, active transportation users, not only uh, people that are driving. So when it comes to bicyclists and pedestrians, uh, a lot of folks were excited that uh, these grants would be able to allocate funds towards those type of facilities, right? Like bike lanes and, uh, you know, sidewalks and other, and other stuff. So another thing is um, there's a, a great interest in just improving the health, social, and safety outcomes of uh, neighborhoods and communities. And for example, uh, we have an advocate such as Nilka Martel, uh, who works with uh, a, a public health expert like Alex Levine, um, who's the co-founder of Bronx One Policy Group. Uh, they've successfully campaigned and worked with elected officials uh, to say, hey, you know, um, the, the car traffic, the, the uh, vehicular traffic that's traveling on the Cross Bronx Expressway and other highways within the Bronx, they're leading to adverse health outcomes for people within our community. And so the they essentially didn't use uh, the reconnecting community um pilot grant program, but they use something very similar, the RAISE grant, which they've received $2 million for. Um, and just to mention 
the grants are, are, are tied together. And again, this is something that I think USDOT was very mindful of. I think that's always important is to remember that like there's multiple opportunities out there, right? And so even though this one says reconnecting communities pilot, if there's other grant opportunities that are transportation safety, it's all about being strategic and saying, no, this title isn't exactly about capping a highway, for example, but we can couch this as a transportation safety kind of initiative. Um, I'll take a interesting approach and I'll just think about the success of a highway covering project that we've all seen in our lifetime before and that's the big dig in Boston um and so this started in the 90s where Boston had an elevated highway interstate 93 that ran through downtown Boston and it kind of like in most cities created a barrier to their waterfront and in and, and separated neighborhoods in their city and so Throughout the 90s and the early 2000s, Boston DOT or Massachusetts DOT set out to put the highway underground. So they took an elevated highway. Instead of making it at grade, they went underneath. And so it's a collection now of tunnels that go through the city. And um, I was actually surprised at how few like pre and post studies had been done beyond like the cost of the project, but like measuring air quality before and air quality after noise pollution before noise pollution after. But what we can say about it is it created 45 parks and plazas. It connected the downtown to adjacent neighborhoods and to the waterfront. Um, it was replaced by the Rose Kennedy Greenway, which now is a tree-lined boulevard um, with several miles of sidewalks, streetlights, trees, and plazas. And so some of the improvements we can see as a result of this undertaking were traffic flow. So a big issue with um the elevated highway just wasn't enough space for all the cars and the population growth that Boston and their metro area experience. And so now with this underground highway, there's enough space for all these cars to get through. And from an engineering perspective, that's like the number one thing that they care about is like average annual daily traffic flow. It's like a real big, important thing for engineers. And then value, right? So now living in proximity to a highway generates lower housing value but if you live in proximity to a street tree line boulevard now all these this land is more valuable for development that then results in the city of boston and the state of massachusetts being able to collect all these additional taxes from this higher valuation that brings in a whole equity concern on the sidelines but then there's also neighborhood connectivity and so because there's no longer an elevated highway and I, we will try to put this before and after picture um on our social media page so you can just really see the drastic change because it's insane um and i have never really had the pleasure of going to boston yet to see it um but the physical connectedness and so i'm left with the question of is removing a physical barrier enough to truly connect neighborhoods? Like, yes, they're physically connected, but to the point of displacement 2.0, those populations are long gone from downtown Boston. The population that was there in the 50s and 60s when the highway was built, that population has moved on to different parts of the region, different parts of the country. And so the community that you're now connecting is a new community and they're going to be able to reap the benefits of that connectivity, not to say that you shouldn't do it, right? Because it does create all these health 
concerns and environmental concerns, but that is something to be cognizant of. And we had Charles on the episode, we talked about reparations, and I'm just going to drop that as a little nugget here really quickly. That's exactly where my mind was going. Like, uh, yeah, it's so, it's so complex. Um, because I think you asked a really good question of like the displacement 2.0, um, and what the intentions are, because I do think it can be done. I do think there can be a way to connect communities without displacing um, the people who have lived there for you know decades. Um, but it's really the intention. And that's something that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of equity. I think sometimes we say we'll do things in the name of equity, but we don't actually involve the people who we're intending to serve, which I think Byron made that example earlier of like engagement versus involvement. Um, and I think that could do wonders for these types of projects. And like you said, it doesn't have to be through the specific pilot, but I think this is a good framework of how to even think about what projects we should be doing and what projects we should be using resources for. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've had the opportunity to hear uh, Joy Bailey Bryant, who's the president of uh, Cultural Resources, um, I heard her keynote at uh, Smart Growth America Equity Summit, and she mentioned something that was so profound, like, usually we talk about placemaking, um, but she mentioned that we should be mindful of placekeeping, right? So planning for folks that are already in those neighborhoods, right? And there's a lot of different uh, strategies that I think, um, you know, we're developing as we speak that can help keep people where they are and not lead to any type of displacement or just in general uh, plan for folks that are within the community that doesn't lead to gentrification. We could probably keep going. We could keep bouncing all, all afternoon with, with how much this connects and, you know, and how, how to do it better, but for better too. Um, and uh, like planning um, it's almost, it feels like almost in, in its nature to your planning and you think it's going to be different, but I think the placekeeping example you just mentioned, Byron, of like, well, how can you plan and the people don't have to change, the people who make up that space don't have to change. Um, well, whew, with that, um, I just, um, my mind is just going with all the different, all the different topics and um, I really enjoyed this episode and getting to talk about some of the more technical planning pieces, but then also what that looks like on the ground. Um, so just thank you so much again, Byron, for joining us. We hope this will not be the last time that you come back. Um, you are now part of the Four Degrees family. Um, and so I think there are a multitude of topics that we could talk about in the future. Um, and we drop episodes every other Tuesday. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the number four degrees pod. Peace out, y'all.